Today's reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thanks, Ellen. And can I add my welcome to to Mark's if you've joined us since the start of the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful passage and give all of us soft hearts and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Politics and government. It's something that most of us have a bit of a love-hate relationship with, don't we? So many of us are here in politics because we have high hopes, dreams and aspirations. We long to make our country and world a nicer, more just and peaceful place. Despite what the papers tell us, most of us really are here to make a difference. And yet, the longer we're in politics, the more disillusioned we can feel, as we see the mess, not only here in Westminster, but across the country and in our world. No matter what our leaders pledge in their manifestos, we know that even the best governments will fail to live up to the hype. I vividly remember watching the inauguration of President Obama. I was in Uganda with a room of East Africans. The atmosphere was electric. The anticipation in the room and across the continent was sky high. The fact that the son of a Kenyan man had become the leader of the free world. It was a story of dreams. Millions across America and further afield were hoping that in Obama they had found a redeemer. Yet in my heart, I knew that no matter how good Obama was, he could never live up to the weight of expectation on his shoulders. Deep down, we all know that politics and humankind are flawed and will never deliver the change we want. And yet we're still searching for something or someone to fix the brokenness both in us and in our world. And it's into this darkness, this disappointment, 
that God chose to act that first Christmas, giving us the leader that we actually want and need, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Isaiah 9 is one of the most familiar Old Testament prophecies for telling the birth of Christ the King. Written over 700 years before the birth of Jesus, we hear it read at almost every Christmas carol service, and that can be a lot of times if you're an MP. But whilst we read it most Christmases, have you ever slowed down to properly consider the wonderful truths that these verses offer us? Not only about Christ our King, but his amazing manifesto promise to deliver a glorious future kingdom. We're going to do that now. So our first point, the promise of a glorious future kingdom. Just like today, the people in Isaiah's time were desperate for some festive cheer and good news, having experienced a period of great gloom, verse 1. Whilst they hadn't lived through a global pandemic, they certainly knew what it was to experience distress and darkness. In fact, the lands of Zebulun and Natalie in northern Israel understood better than most living under the, what living under the shadow of death really meant. They were plundered first by the brutal Assyrians and later by the Babylonians. They absolutely understood the pain of bereavement, financial difficulty, mental health battles, as well as injustice. And it's into this context that God promises a glorious future through the prophet Isaiah, a future of great light in the midst of darkness. Light signals safety and hope. Like the light of a lighthouse sending out a light beam to guide the ship to safety. Or the flashlight searching and finding a lost child and leading them home. In verse 2 we read, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's a light that dawns permanently. It will never go out. It's a light that will dispel darkness, depression and death forever. Not only that, but God promises a world of joy and rejoicing, where the celebrations and partying will be so much better than even after the most bumper harvest or the most successful military victory, verse 3. It's a victory that secures peace, peace that lasts forever. It gives freedom from oppression, corruption, and every bad thing that weighs us down in this life, like a bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, verse 4. Imagine being in London on VE Day. What an occasion it would have been. The parades, the singing and dancing, the feeling of euphoria, and quite frankly, just relief that the war was over. God is promising a victory that tops all victories because it's the end to all war, verse 5. A victory that leaves no casualties or walking wounded and brings a new world order with no more tears, pain or death. A victory where every force of evil that stands against God will be toppled. Where every tool of war 
suicide bombs, chemical weapons, guns and knives will be burnt up. A victory where every warring word, character assassination, slanderous insult or bullying relationship will go up in smoke as fuel for the fire. Verse 5. Rather than international conferences like COP26 ending with tears, the nations will come together as God's people in joy and rejoicing, verse 3, at a wonderful rescue and rest forever. And unlike most political manifestos, which often have an air of the over-optimistic, God's manifesto here provides a sure and certain future. It is so certain that Isaiah even writes in the past tense, as if it had already come to pass, and even the biggest MP rebellion won't cause God to change his mind. And the reason we can be so certain that this promise isn't just some utopian dream is because God has already fulfilled the second part of the prophecy in verses 6 and 7. Through the prophet Isaiah, God promised to provide an extraordinary king, and 700 years after this promise, he did exactly that in Jesus. So our second point, the provision of an extraordinary king. He entered the world as a baby through a natural, very ordinary birth. And yet this was no ordinary child, but an extraordinary king given to us. As verse six says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So what do we know about this king? Names tell us a lot about a person, don't they? Parents agonize over what to call their children, looking at meanings, thinking about the initial combinations, trying to work out if the name still works if their son or daughter becomes prime minister, let alone trying to second guess if it's too pretentious, too common, or if great Aunt Tilly will take offence if you haven't used the family name. But even with these considerations, I don't think any of us would have the audacity to call our child wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This wasn't exactly your typical name for a baby born in a sleepy Galilean backwater town either. And yet this was entirely appropriate for this child as it reflected the type of leader and king he was. William Shakespeare once said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. In Jesus Christ, we find a leader for whom all three are true. Every now and then, you will find a politician who is described as possessing Messiah-like qualities, and yet none come close to Jesus Christ, who was the wonderful counsellor. Those who heard Jesus in his day marvelled at his wisdom and teaching. Even his en enemies testified Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. To this day, no philosopher, think tank or special advisor has had as much impact upon human thought as the one born in Bethlehem's manger. 
Jesus had God's own supernatural wisdom. He's a king who never got things wrong. A wise counsellor who makes you want to sit up and listen. A divine guide who can help us to navigate life in the best way possible. And he's not just wise, he's powerful too. His name is Mighty God. Whilst phrases like strong and stable government or coalitions of chaos have been bandied around Westminster over the past few years, in Jesus Christ we have a king who really did bring order out of chaos. Through his life, Jesus displayed God's own strength. He healed the sick and cast out demons. He calmed a storm and even raised the dead. No enemy, physical or spiritual, was his equal. And he's also the everlasting father, which is perhaps an even more surprising name. We don't tend to think of Jesus Christ as a father. And yet he is the father of the universe the creator of heaven and earth. He's God himself. As the Apostle John wrote, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the life of all mankind. Whilst he was there at the start, his reign as king will also continue forever and ever. It's hard to imagine Queen Elizabeth's rule ever ending. Each year, she rewrites the record books. But Jesus' reign will make Queen Elizabeth look like a mere footnote in history. Isaiah writes of the greatness of his government, there will be no end, verse 7. Jesus won't gradually withdraw from public life. He won't go into retirement or lose his seat at the next election. Even death won't bring an end to his reign. His government is eternally strong and stable. As the angel Gabriel told his mother Mary, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And yet a long rule is not always the mark of a good rule. Witness the relief and joy when a brutal dictatorship finally ends. And even the best governments will fail in the end, because no government is ever totally good. But listen to the description of Christ's rule in verse 7. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Jesus is a leader who isn't driven by favouritism or self-interest. He doesn't seek to manipulate or exploit. Instead, he came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life for his people. It's often said that if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If it had been technology, perhaps he'd have sent a scientist. If it had been money, an economist. But God knew our greatest need was peace. Peace with one another and peace with God. This is why his final name is the Prince of Peace. We live in a world marred by conflict. We see conflict between nations, 
between political parties and even in our personal relationships. The most serious is a world living in conflict with God as we've rejected his leadership and rule in our lives. And it's into this world that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the Prince of Peace to deal with our rebellion fully and finally. Peace couldn't be secured in a diplomatic negotiation. There was a no 11th hour settlement. Peace wasn't won by military might, but by a massive sacrifice. God gave up his son to die on a cross in our place so that we could be reconciled with God. He experienced the full darkness of separation from God so that we could live in his light forever. He shouldered our sin to win peace with God. As, I, as Isaiah will say later in his book, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ is an extraordinary king, and this Christmas we're reminded that he invites us into his glorious future kingdom. A kingdom marked with light, hope, celebration and rejoicing. A future where injustice, oppression and wrongdoing won't exist. It's a kingdom that has already started but will only be fully and finally realised when Jesus Christ returns to reign. But already we can live in peace and harmony with God. As we look ahead to Christmas and we reflect on these familiar words, let's see the gift that God has given us, a place in his eternal kingdom ruled by his extraordinary king. Like the best gifts, God's gift comes with a guarantee the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The offer here is real, not wishful season's greetings, but a cast iron promise from God, a political manifesto that is entirely trustworthy as it's from God himself. Using words from President Obama's election campaign, we can trust him, yes we can. So the question is, will Jesus Christ get your trust this Christmas? Only his government can bring real and everlasting change. Only his leadership has the answer to the mess and brokenness in us, our country and our world. We all long for a perfect leader and Isaiah spells it out for us. It's Jesus Christ, our King. He's the wonderful counsellor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Christ as our King and for the incredible kingdom of peace, 
righteousness and justice that he invites all of us to be part of. Thank you that we can be confident that he's entirely trustworthy and the real answer to all the mess, both within us and our world. Please help each of us here to see that he is the king that we both want and need and the one who offers us a glorious future for eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.